Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October the 13th. This is episode 2975 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a guy coming on named Don Bradner. I'm not sure if we're getting I'm not sure if we're getting his wife with him too or just him at the moment. It may be solo, it may be a duo, but either way we'll be talking to one or both of the Bradners on their adventures in homesteading and specifically focusing in on how they built their house on their homestead. They've built a pole barn house. And when I say that, you might have a pretty uh I don't know, rough view of what it looks like. It's actually beautiful. It's really beautiful. I'm really excited to, to learn more about this and why they chose uh, this method of building. It's a beautiful home. If I looked at it from a distance, I might say, well, it's a little bit different design. Um, I might look at it and think, well, it's kind of barn dominium-ish, but I wouldn't really look at it as anything other than a really cool house. Um, when I when I originally got this request for this interview, I looked up their YouTube channel to see what it looked like, and it was not at all what I was expecting. Beautiful home, beautiful homestead, beautiful family, and I'm excited about this interview. I'm going to try to do what we did yesterday. And yesterday, what I think we did, and what I always try to do with my interviews, is I had a great discussion. I had a great discussion with Paul yesterday. Hopefully, we'll have a great discussion with Don today on, on this. And this might be kind of a new way of looking at how you might provide housing for yourself in the future. I think the more options we have, as long as we don't get bogged down in analysis paralysis, the better the decision we can make. Because you might decide after hearing today's interview that where you want to live and the climate you're in and the resources you have, et cetera, locally and, and what have you, this is a perfect way to go. And you might decide that's really interesting, it's nice for some people, but not for me. That's how housing is, that's how most things are. That's why we, 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 we deplore monopolies around here. That's why government solutions are always bad, because they're always monopolies. There's never any choice when it comes to the government. Fortunately, the government's not telling you what type of house you have to live in yet, especially if you're a bit creative with your status jujitsu. and I'm sure we'll get into that a bit today, too. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. RidgeWallet was a sponsor that came to me by happenstance, I guess, or, or I was quite skeptical. Uh, I heard from an individual who is actually a marketing rep for them. He reps other companies as well. He says, I have two companies I want you to look at. And the one I was like, it's just not a good fit. I, I don't think I can help you. The Ridgewallet one, I'm like, I'm, I'm curious, but I don't know that it'll work for me. And it's hard for me to endorse things unless I can use them in my own life, right? So I know people use wallets like this. I'm not sure. I get the security measure of, of making your RFID-enabled uh, cards not being able to be picked up by sniffers and things like that. But I don't know if it'll work for me. I'm pretty big on my billfold that I've carried forever. And they said, well, let us send you one and try it. And I decided I would try it for, you know, 30, 60 days. You can do anything for 30 to 60 days. And then I never stopped using it. I have not touched my billfold. It's still sitting. I can see it every time I say this about Ridge Wallet. It's sitting on the shelf where I put it and said, if you need it back, it'll be there three years ago. It'll be three years ago this January. 
Uh, so check out RidgeWallet.com. They have some other cool products as well. And MSB members, you get a discount. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, easiest company I've ever endorsed. Since I've been reading them since 93 and a subscriber since 94, boy, I sound all, oh, back in 1994? Yeah, that's when I was starting. I started subscribing to Backwoods Home, and I did. I really did. I'm still a subscriber today. I still remember uh, when some kids from the Duffy family came up to me at a uh, an expo uh, out in uh, Salt Lake City, and they wan
and uh, she wanted to try audiobooks. So we are living in a townhouse, all the noise around us. She's trying to record audiobooks from home. And as you know from doing podcasts at home, noise is noise. And the market got hot. The, the townhouse two doors down from us listed for over 300000 And three years ago, or three years before that, we had just bought ours for like two thirty-five. And I'm like, wait, dang, that, that, that's, that's expensive. And I had already done some work, you know, thinking about, you know, saving money and whatnot. As soon as we bought our townhouse, I put a kitchenette in the basement and said, we're going to get a tenant in here right away. They're going to pay our mortgage for us so we can continue saving and paying off college loan debt and all that kind of good stuff. But when I saw that opportunity with the market getting hot and the idea of going somewhere a little more quiet out of the hustle and bustle of Northern Virginia, we had to jump on it. So, uh, yeah, my, my best friend from college happened to become a real estate agent, and he came over. He's like, yeah, we'll, we will get you top dollar right away, asking price, good to go. So, um, yeah, we're just taking advantage of our surroundings, really. And, and like I said, after looking at YouTube and listening to stuff, I, I figured if I could get get at least an acre somewhere out of suburbia, there would be a lot more I could do with my life and provide for the family. So what made you choose your current location? Where is it? How far is it from where you, you guys left behind, et cetera? Like, because what I've learned as we started kind of doing this ourselves and leaving like the place that was just where we had to be because that's where my wife wanted to be because that's where sisters and parents were – when we kind of said, like, okay, we're still going to be around family, but, like, two-hour circle around Dallas-Fort Worth, that's a big piece of place. I can only imagine yeah. being able to go anywhere and then – because most people that shop for property, like, I want to be in the zip code or next to this, you know, my job or whatever. How did you guys decide on the place, and, and where did you end up? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, so with Natalie's family kind of all being in northern Virginia, she grew up around Fairfax. Um, my wife is Natalie, by the way. <laughs> But uh, with, with them being so local, we wanted to stay close. And at the time, I was still a band teacher. Didn't really have plans on quitting being a band teacher because I was like the, the main income for the family with the benefits of being a teacher and all that kind of good stuff. Um, so we, we had our little radius where I needed to have the band job and be within an hour, hour and a half of our family because uh, we're, you know, her side of the family is pretty tight knit with a lot of kids. Uh, coming up through the ranks and everything so we we had our radius and we were looking west to get out of D, you know the dc area and uh out of the beltway for sure so we looked west towards the mountains and it was really funny our family had gone on a vacation to the mountains and uh, they took the kids for my in-laws took the kids for a day and natalie and i went you know visiting all the wineries that had all these beautiful views we're like dang this is pretty nice Let's move out here. And then we did. <laughs> so uh, we just looked in the area, saw, you know, like my commute to work wouldn't be more than an hour and a half. And so we moved out towards the, the Front Royal area of Virginia, right along the Appalachian Trail and Shenandoah National Park, Skyline Drive, all the all the beauty that's out here without being busy in Northern Virginia. So that's where we moved to. Yeah, I think that, like, you know, people here West Virginia, and there's there's the state, and then there's the western part of Virginia, and it is night and day different from you know where you think of when you think of Virginia, and you think of like the D.C. metro area and Richmond around there. It's Virginia is a huge state. I think that's another thing people kind of lose sight of, like because it it starts out skinny and it gets really big by the time it gets into the western. I remember the first time I drove through that part of Virginia, it was when I decided to come to Texas uh, back in '93. Uh, and I remember driving through there and thinking, God, this is a beautiful, rugged country. So 
go for the wine, stay for the view, and uh, build a homestead. Cool. Yeah, wineries attract me too. We just found a really cool one down the road, and like we're gonna like we're gonna support them. We're gonna run events there and stuff because it's a it's a cool new industry coming up. Um, how did you choose the location, like where you're gonna site your home on this new homestead? And I'm sorry if I missed it there. Um, did you say how many acres of land you guys got? Uh, so, uh, we so we ended up getting, getting this five-acre five acre plot. plot. Okay. Um, I wanted more than a couple acres for sure. So, you know, as you do, you're you're stalking Zillow and Realtor.com and Redfin. And I had been looking for a long time trying to find the spot where I could convince Natalie to leave what she was used to behind. You know, she was used to having everything so close and walking distance. And and so I, it needed to be the perfect property. And when, when I first saw this property listed... It had been listed for 11 years, and and it had just tons of trees everywhere, a really old cabin, but the, the, the benefits, huge benefits, were it had all the utilities there. It had well, septic, and electric hooked up to this old cabin, and I think that the guy would have sold it in one year instead of 11 had he torn down that old cabin and just said, hey, home site, ready to go, hour and a half from Washington, D.C., it would have sold like hotcakes, so... When I saw that, I saw the potential, you know, you look at the topographical maps and, and uh, the GIS stuff and kind of look around and, and see the area, and I, I really liked it, but I'd never told Natalie about it. I was like, ah, she's not going to go for that. It's not like the spot yet. I'd have to do a lot to it. But then like two months later, Natalie's like, hey, I'm looking up for property, and what do you think of this one? And she showed me the listing. I was like, dude, that's, that's where I want to go. And uh, so it was just kind of like perfect. And uh, we, we checked it out. We came up here, and we could tell that if you just clear a select few trees, you get this million-dollar do- million view looking east, the sun rising uh, towards Washington, D.C., and, again, so close to the Appalachian Trail and all these great things around us. So it had more acreage. It had the five acres, and, you know, maybe we'll do more someday. But uh, this was a really good start for us, and having utilities in place, we knew that with, with some work, that we could uh, really make this place our forever home, little slice of heaven on the mountain. I think there's definitely something in looking for property that has some sort of eyesore or problem that really isn't a problem, like a bulldozer or a match and a can of gasoline, and that problem is gone, right? Like, There's a lot of ways to make that problem go away because most people – they can't see past a problem. If you watch like real estate shows, like even like house hunters and stuff like that, the, the things people bitch about are so stupid. They're like, I don't like this color. There's a store called Home Depot. They sell paint, yeah. right? Like it's like the easiest thing. Literally anybody can do it. A few gallons of paint, the room is not blue anymore. Now it's tan or beige or whatever you want it to be. And while I teach people like fix all that stuff, if you're the seller, when you're the buyer, I teach the exact opposite. Like, Look for as many of those easy layup fixes that the seller's too lazy or doesn't have the money to fix that you can find. I'm usually looking for probably has been on market for like four months or more, eleven years. That's like the yeah. predatory freaking fangs start coming <laughs> exactly. out, and like you're like Mr. Burns, like excellent, like because you know, you know there's there's a two edged sword, right? Like you know you can negotiate. You also know like guys only so willing to negotiate because he's waited eleven years and not. You know, not dumped it, but that's really cool. And that that's a big strategy with homes, land, whatever. If it's an eyesore but it's easily fixed, it's an advantage to the buyer and a disadvantage to the seller. And then if you're flipping property, remember that on the other side. For sure, yeah. yeah. 
Um, so then you get this brilliant idea. And so you, I imagine the conversation with the wife goes something like, listen, babe, I got this great idea. We're going to build this really great house. It's going to be cool. Until then, we're going to live in a camper. It'll be cool. So how did that go over, and what was it actually like in practice? Yeah, you know, we've heard of other people doing it. People glorify it on Instagram. Yeah, we're going to live in our camper and build our home. And, like, there's TV shows about it and stuff. There's homesteaders that do it on YouTube, travel across the country in their camper with their family of five. And so I will say this, that had we known, you know, it would be the way it was when I was pitching that to her, she never would have said yes. It uh, it was not that easy, and you know both of us had an, had experiences as younger kids with their own families camping, and maybe even doing some camper stuff just for like a week in the summer. You know, go down to the local campground and park it. And wow, uh, the camper life was interesting, and you know especially when you come up to a mountain, and we're at fifteen hundred feet up where we are now, so it's not like it's not the it's not the Rockies, but it's five degrees colder up here. And when we have two inches of snow down he- up here, they have nothing down there. So all these elements go are need to be factored in. And campers are not built for full-time living, especially the one that we picked up. We just picked up a second-hand one and uh, a good deal on it, 27-footer. And we thought, yeah, we'll make this work. It'll be it'll be rough, but we'll we'll make it work. Little did we know we'd have pipes freezing all over the place and. You know, I wasn't very experienced with uh, septic management, but I became experienced very quickly, you could say. Uh, Pro tip, don't leave your poop door open because all those gases and fumes will come right back up at you. Because I thought, well, there's septic on site already. I'm just going to run along poop holes all the way down to the septic clean out, and it'll be perfect. And after a couple days, I'll leave that open, and it was a hot summer day in the middle of a camper with a family of four. Uh, yeah, I was in trouble. So there's lots of things that we ran into, you know, frozen water lines. I had to get the heated hose going from the, the well spigot all the way up to the camper because it kept freezing. And the worst part was the first winter we were up here, massive ice storm. And, you know, the mountain's losing power all the time. I have to go outside, turn on the generator just to keep it going. And one night I just heard trees falling all around us. I'm like, you know what? You're, you are you are the guy in charge right now, and you need to get your family out of there because the tree's going to fall on your freaking camper and crush everybody. So we spent two nights in the hotel, made it like a vacation for the kids, swimming in the pool of the hotel and everything. But it was it was pretty it was pretty dark there for a little bit, just trying to manage the space and the elements and all the craziness. Um, and eventually, you know, later on, we started building the house. We had a crew come and start it, but we moved in way too early into an unfinished house because our camper, there is a nearby lightning strike. And right after replacing the inverter, it fried the inverter again and fried our air conditioning and everything. So, yeah, the camper life was a little more complicated than I had anticipated for sure. Yeah, and I think no matter where you are, you have your own unique challenges. If you do that here in Texas, you're not going to have, well, this year we did for a couple of weeks, but you're not going to have the cold challenges in general, right? But air conditioning a camper when it's 111 degrees is a lot of energy and a lot of work and doing things like putting some sort of cover over it or whatever. I think there's a lot of ways to do that. I think a camper can work. Some of them are so cheap now you could get two. That might help so that people have their own little space they can get away from. Like use one for, you know, use one and use the kitchen in it and use the other one more like it's just a lounge area. I, there's, I, you know, and then sell it. If you can buy it cheap, you can sell it for what you had and don't count it as a cost because, or, you know, if you spot it for 
five grand to sell it for four grand. You rented it for two years for a grand. That's for the sure, way to sure. look at that. Yeah. Um, but it has a challenges. You, you'd almost think sometimes maybe throwing in a, I don't know, a 12 by 18 tough shed and having it spray foamed well, would be, would be a better way to live. And then when you build your house, you have like a badass shed or you have like, uh, a really cool office or studio or something like that that you can then rely on, you know, and maybe you still drag one of those campers up there and you use it when it's convenient and you all, you know, kind of fit in less space when it's not. I I don't know, but I think you're right on maybe too early. Like it's hard to be your own general contractor if you're not on site. So it has that, yes. like, what, how do we do this? I guess the other thing though is you're kind of through it now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, and we and actually we did actually what you suggested. Suggest we put, put a shed, a shed in, place in place because my wife, being an audiobook recorder, narrator, she needed her studio. So the first thing we did is put a 12 by 24 shed on there, the biggest one we could get without the permit being required by the county. And I put that studio in there and then storage and all that kind of stuff because we did not have enough space for all of our junk. And, yeah, exactly, being on site so that we could start managing the beginning of the process and all the contractors coming out for concrete and whatnot – um, and it's also way better than paying a thousand dollars a month rent for your family to be, you know, an hour away too. So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, why'd you choose pole barn as, as the type of structure to build? I've actually not heard of that before. I was like, well, is it a barn dominium? And it's like, not really. It's sort of, but not really like barn dominiums are usually like steel frame prefab, what have you. Like what led you down that path? Yeah, they're very closely related and, we knew that we wanted something that I was going to be able to do a lot of work on. You know, originally I had the pie in the sky idea of me setting the posts myself in the ground. But, you know, pole barn post frame structures have been around for quite some time and they got especially popular, um, I believe, back uh, during the days of the, de- of the Depression and everything. And then moving forward, people were looking for cheap materials to build with. And especially after World War II, you started seeing people put these, these foam poles in the ground. And they require a lot less lumber than a traditional stick-built home will require because of the frame. Uh, And they require almost no foundation. In fact, you could say it doesn't have a foundation. And when we're building up on the side of a mountain, and I've got a 40% grade to contend with, you know, excavating out 10-foot deep, you know, walkout basement or a big old foundation, that... I just wasn't interested in that because I was going to be really complicated and really expensive. And so with a pole barn house or a pole barn structure, you're relying on those posts to be four to five feet deep in the ground, and they are they are your foundation. And, um, you know, it's definitely not traditional as far as, like, a house would be concerned. But once you get that, that frame up, once you get the posts in place, then you can kind of do what you want. And, you know, we opted, you'll see on our YouTube channel, we opted for the black color because we like that that black modern look, kind of like the cabin in the woods, like Scandinavian a little bit. Um, but we really liked how how we could put it in pretty dang quick. And it's also cheaper because of uh, less wood. Obviously, the lumber prices have gone up since then, so it would have been even been worse now. But uh, having no foundation necessary and being able to put it up quick was really important. Our builder, uh, they came down from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and it was an Amish crew, three or four guys at a time, depending on the day, and they had that sucker up in nine days. I mean, what house can you put up in nine days? You really can't. So, uh, And then with the idea that I wanted to do a lot of work myself inside, when you're dealing with a pole barn structure, 
there are no interior load-bearing faults. So whatever I did inside, I knew that if I screwed up really bad, the house wouldn't fall down. <laughs> you know, so uh, there was all all that kind of like we could customize it to be our own. We could say, hey, build this shell, this beautiful shell right here on the mountain, and then we can do our own floor plan. We can change where the bedrooms and bathrooms are and and put things different places. And it's funny, actually, we started putting up the interior walls, and then we decided, this looks a little too cramped in here. So we took down a wall that we had just put up and said, nah, we're not going to have that many bedrooms. So there's a lot of flexibility with a pole barn post-frame structure that is not offered in a traditional stick build, for sure. For those that are on the live feed, I've got a uh, photo I was able to grab off of a video here uh, of your your place showing. And it, like I said, it's it's I don't think it's what people would immediately come to in their mind when they think of a pole barn structure. It's, it's really cool. And I uh, just wanted to kind of pop that up there and show off that I am learning how to use StreamYard. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's a really cool-looking home. And it's interesting that, like, the, the no-interior load-bearing wall is something I hadn't thought of. And that is huge because, yeah, like, you can't screw up the inside. I guess you can screw up the inside. Like, hey, I don't like the way that looks or what have you. But what's not going to happen is... You're, you're not going to end up in a situation where the roof comes down on top. Exactly. Right? You know, like, so that's that's really, really cool. Um, now, it used to be if you moved out and stick somewhere like you are, or what have you, you did what you wanted and nobody bothered you. Um, there are still places like that where I live, I'm fortunate. Unless, I, the sheriff literally told me, unless you're cooking meth, we don't care what you do. Do whatever. Yeah, like, yeah. we don't have time for that crap. There's no codes, no building inspections. I've found more and more throughout the country that that's not the case. And even places just like where I live, only a few miles away in a different county, have a totally different thing as far as inspections and all. So when you're putting in a pole barn structure, um, what was that like? As far, was there any codes, inspections, things you had to go through, and, and how did you get through those? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we are still considered like in the northern area of Virginia a little bit. And so they were used to the typical uh, stick-built or brick single-family home. And so when I brought this to the to the building office at the county seat, they're like, they just looked at me like I was handing them something written in, you know, some other language. And I'm just like, well, I it's, it's an engineered drawing. My builder engineered it. It is safe. It's good to go. And it took many visits back and forth, and it's a 45-minute drive into the middle of the county seat. 45-minute drives back and forth, talking to them on the phone, and just kind of convincing them that this is viable and that there are ways to work around the issues that they brought up. They they were concerned about insulation. Um, I, I ended up spray foaming my house, and that's kind of a long story, but I spray foamed it, and they're like, well, what are you going to do about ventilation? Because you're air sealing your house tight. I'm like, exactly, I am. You put in an air handler that manages the airflow on your terms, not managing, you know, a leaky house that's traditionally built that has, you know, fiberglass. And uh, so you can you can work around all of the, the problems that they were, you know, giving to me. I'm like, nope, here's this, here's that. And a couple times I actually had to get the engineers from my builder on the phone with them just to kind of say, no, these structures are sound, it's going to last forever. And a concern that the county had, and a concern that a lot of people have with pole barn structures, post-frame structures, is what about those posts in the ground? You're putting wood 
in the ground. Isn't that going to rot? Well, you know, the old structures are still standing because those were with old growth timbers and really good dense wood, and they maybe treated them, maybe not, but they're still standing. But now with the quick growth wood that has the farther rings in the in the grain of the wood, it's weaker, so you definitely have to do something. So we told them, no, we're protecting them, and there's a product called Green Post, and it's this plastic sleeve that gets kind of molded on to the bottom of your post, so that all the way down to the bottom and all the way up through above the soil line, which is where the rot will occur, all that stuff is protected. And they even had a coating inside of that, but I had no worries about putting that in the ground because I know that that will protect those posts. It's never going to fall down. You know, you don't have to worry about the barn falling over and killing my family. Like, everything was going to work. So it took some some finagling and some convincing with the county, but eventually after about five or six weeks of back and forth, we were able to get it pushed through for sure. Yeah, I, it's status jiu-jitsu, use words they understand, say things the way they want to hear them, bring expertise in. It's interesting that you even have to explain this stuff because you're sitting there going, well, Bill's barn was built in 1880, and it's still there, so maybe okay. we don't need to worry about it falling down. We actually have maybe not as good of materials today from the standpoint of timber, but we have better technology today than exactly. Bill's great-great-grandfather had when he built that barn, and here they are all over the country without killing people, and maybe this is going to be okay. And I, I think a lot of these people, they're just, they don't understand anything that's not in their book, right? They're just, they were hired into a bureaucratic position. They were trained into a bureaucratic mindset. They tick all the boxes. They check off things every day that are probably unsafe. Yep. But they're they're in the words they understand. We we learned a lot about words that people understand when we were trying to get like insurance. Like you don't tell people that you have a permaculture farm at an insurance company. You tell them you have an organic farm mm-hmm. or you tell them you have a farm. Farm yeah, yeah, insurance doesn't have anything to do with whether it's organic, permaculture, regenerative. Like they don't care about that. But if you use a word like that, all of a sudden, like, oh, I don't know what to do. I, I'm sorry. I used a word you didn't know. Absolutely. Just just put farming down. Just put house I think the the advantage with what you've built over some other alternatives is, for instance, I looked at a a geodesic dome, and it was a hell of a deal. It was more than I spent pent here, but it was a great price. I looked at the kitchen and just off the top of my head said, if I built that kitchen, that's $65,000. And and it was eight acres, and the house was over 4,000 square foot, incredibly energy efficient, and I think the guy wanted two sixty five dollars for it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... I couldn't even afford to build that. And I love kitchen. So I'm like, yeah. And we couldn't get a mortgage approved for it because it was in a circle. Right. So you might, I'm going to get into your financing and stuff here in a minute. But I think once it's done, it's a square house or a rectangular house with a roof on it. So it'll appraise as real estate. And if you need to sell it, because you should always have an exit strategy, you won't have that problem. And it's a shame, but it goes to the same thing. Like it amazed me that none of the appraisers, that were approved for a mortgage company were willing to appraise the value of the home just relating, okay, here's the acreage, here's the square footage, et cetera. Here's a house down the street that's comparable because that house was square and this one was round. They wouldn't do it. But the city and the county had no problem appraising it to tax it. Exactly. Right? So it was it was amazing to me. But I think that maybe that, like, when you're looking at alternative structures, if you're not going to, if you don't really believe you're going to be there forever, at least stay in square probably has some advantages. For sure. Yeah. So 
you wanted to do everything yourself. I think you wisely brought in help, right, for parts of it. But what kind of skills did you have going in? What what did you develop during that time? And, you know, what didn't work out? Like, what kind of setbacks did you have? Maybe eventually it worked out, but you had to retool it, or you just end, ended up saying, I'm not doing this, and tag somebody in to take care of certain things. Sure, sure yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's good old YouTube University, <laughs> and uh, any DIYer has watched at least three to five videos to prepare for the next project they're doing. So that, that was a huge thing that I used. And back at our old townhouse, like I mentioned earlier, I put in a kitchenette down there, and that I had never done really plumbing before. I would never put in cabinets before, but I kind of built up the confidence from that project. But other than that, I was just a regular Joe that, you know, does my own oil changes. Like, I, I like working with my hands, but uh, I didn't really have that much uh, experience and knowledge, you could say, going into this. So... I somehow was able to convince my wife that it was going to be okay. And, and again, had she known that we would run into things that we ran into, maybe she would have been like, eh, I don't know about this. Let's hold off for a little bit. But, uh, you know, I, from doing plumbing and doing electrical and then framing up walls and all that kind of good stuff, it's, it's, it's kind of straightforward for the most part. You know, I had an electrician put in the main panel, and then from there I branched out from it. And obviously when you're working with electricity, as long as you turn off that main panel, you're good. You're not going to kill yourself. So just remembering things like that, as long as, you know, the poop flows downhill with your septic system, you're good to go, that kind of stuff. Um, it was just a lot of watching and watching other people screw up, watching other people do it right on YouTube, and then doing it myself. And then, you know, eventually we started our own channel and showed all of our screw-ups and failed inspections. And, you know, you, you learn along the way. And again, because the house was strong and up already, I wasn't worried about killing anybody as long as, you know, I figured out all the electricity stuff. But there was definitely some stuff, like, where I failed inspections. But luckily, you know, going back to having the county involved, my inspector is an awesome guy. He's super understanding, super helpful. I can email him, be like, hey, I'm doing this for the plumbing. And he's like, yep, sounds good. And he'll come, and he'll check it off. And if something was wrong, he would explain it to me. So I guess that is one possible perk of having somebody looking over your shoulder. Um, you know, normally it'd be cool to not have that requirement. But in this case, it worked out. You know, every failed inspection was a learning experience for us, whether it's plumbing or framing. You know, I, as a new builder, I didn't know that the interior walls sitting on top of the slab needed the pressure-treated bottom plate because I'd never built a house before. I just built decks, and that was it. So... You know, he came in, he's like, oh, by the way, I'm going to fail you for that framing because that bottom board is not pressure treated. So then I'm down there on my hands and knees knocking out all the sill plates at the bottom. You know, it's just you, you live and you learn and you, you figure things out as you go. And, you know, it's sometimes you end up spending a little bit more money along the way. But we have, you know, I'm sure we'll talk later. I have more projects coming up and all this experience that I'm gaining through building this house. I'm going to be able to, you know, put forward to the future projects we have coming up for sure. Now, you were able to raise some capital, right, when you um, sold your home uh, and moved. But some of that probably had to go to, like, buy the property and what have you. So you're doing something a little unconventional, pole barn. I think this would apply to barn dominiums, probably other alternative construction. Uh, getting a, a mortgage or a building loan on those may be a little bit different. How, how are you funding this? Were you able to acquire funding through conventional channels with a little creativity or are you doing a pay go how did how do you make this work 
Yeah, yeah so, so I mentioned earlier that we sold that townhouse uh, during the height of a market. So we left with over $60,000 cash on top of that, and then we had just bought the thing three years before. So we were able to take that and apply it forward towards getting this land. Um, we got the land for just over 150000 for five acres in Northern Virginia. Elsewhere, it sounds really expensive, but for around here, I was like, dang, with our view and utilities already on site, we had a lot going for us. Um, so we were able to take that, and then, you know, obviously I had my full-time job, and Natalie was starting to pick up more gigs uh, as an audiobook narrator, and now she's like a big-time award winner and everything, and eventually I was actually able to quit my teaching job to focus on the house and the kids because she would start tripling my income. And when you're a teacher, that's not hard to do. But uh, she, she, we're very blessed and thankful that she's able to make as much as she does. Um, but as far as like kind of like paying for everything, I guess you could say that's why the house in some ways has taken so long to build because we are building with the cash. And the idea is that after taking out our land loan, it was about 6.5% interest on the land loan because they, they got really, they got nothing to go off of. They, they wouldn't actually count the cabin as a viable structure. And eventually we would tear it down and make space for the house. So it was a land loan for six and a half percent. We got, you know, we had to get enough credit to get that with the, with the capital we had coming from the old house. And then we were able to just kind of build as we could. It was about 12 months after we moved on site from, uh, from the time we moved on to the time we gave our builder our first check for the, for the structure is about 12 months. So again, we were able to build up a little bit more on the back end as far as cash flow goes. Um, and I can tell you in the audience, the shell of our house cost about $50,000. So that was kind of like, you know, taking 60 and down payment for the land and this and that, you know, eventually we were able to make it work. And, you know, building with cash, we had dreams of a big, you know, like a barn dominium like you see in Texas, like a big, big shop space and all that good stuff. And we ended up chopping the house basically in half because we were building with cash. And when, you, when you're trying to be more financially secure and not taking out giant mortgages and, and loans and this and that, you got to make sacrifices, you know. And so we built much smaller than we wanted to, but we had the cash coming in, and that's how we made it work. But uh, if you have to finance a pole barn house, a barn dominium, you know, not, not everybody's got to do it with cash. If you have to finance it, that's fine. There are ways to do that, usually through your local lenders. Um, you can't get it through a big mortgage company usually. Uh, you have to be really careful with how you use your words. Like you were saying, you have to speak their language. And so do not call it a pole barn house. Do not call it a barn dominium when you want to build it. You say, I would like the loan. I would like a construction loan for a custom wood-framed building with metal siding. And they they usually don't say anything beyond that. And, you know, there, there are lenders that are customized and specialized in these structures. But if you want to go the more traditional route with more traditional low rates, uh, don't, don't give them too much information. Just give them what they need to know. It's going to be a house, wood frame like any other house, and it's going to have some, some metal siding on the side. So that'll be cool, too. You know, don't, don't shoot yourself in the foot when you're trying to get financed. And I think one of the things I've learned with some of these, even when they're hard to finance, usually when they're done, they're not. So I've seen people build smaller than they want, then get an appraisal after it's done. It appraises really, really well now, and it's a done house. There's no explaining to do. It's a house. It's there. And then they'll take a mortgage, and they'll expand. So when they do it, they'll build the house with expansion in mind. So this wall 
has always been designed to have doors in it or to go away or something like that. Um, and then usually when you're doing that, you're taking basically a home equity line of credit. You don't really have to explain what you're going to do with the money. And then often when the house is done, they'll reappraise and refinance. And then you actually take a, a better interest rate because you have a lower, uh, lower loan against value ratio at that yeah. point. So, um, Gary Collins, who used to be on the expert council, uh, he did that because he was doing some sort of SIP type construction or something that was hard to finance. So he basically built his house with a credit card and then was able to finance it through a bank once it was done exactly. and have a reasonable payment on it. So there's a lot of ways to be creative with it. Um, sounds like what you did worked out. I mean, what you're doing does take longer. Uh, it does require more sacrifice, but those who take longer require more sacrifice initially tend to end up doing better long term because I'm sure, you know, 15 years from now, but they'll be like, you live here mortgage free. You're so lucky, right? Like it's not, nothing to do with luck. It has to do with planning and sacrifice and sweat equity and all that other stuff. And it's, it's why, you know, people are shocked when they look at houses that like their grandparents grew up in and like, you had eight kids in this little house. <laughs> well, that's, that's how grandpa built the house, right? He did exactly what you did. And so you build smaller homes and, you know, you all also, also often look at old homes and you're like, well, there's addition one, there's addition two, yep. there's addition three. This is when they converted the basement or whatever. Like you, you can actually see it grow. And it was, it was, to be fair, it was easier to do back then. You didn't have to have 47 different bureaucrats come <laughs> check boxes. Cause I watch these home improvement shows and I'm always shocked and they're like, well, you know, we, we're going to need some more money from you for this rebuild. And the guy's like, well, why? You know, did you find something back? Well, no, you have too many windows on the west wall of the house. And they won't approve it unless we take a window away. And you're like, but the house was there for 85 years with six windows on that side of the house. But now that it's being redone, the new code applies and you can only have five windows because apparently it's a fire threat is the way they justify this because it can hmm. spread through the window to the next house. You're like, well, the next house is 150 yards over there, right? Like, so, like, there's all of this crap now. And it sounds like at least where you are, it's not, it's not that bad, you know, but it amazes me what we have to go through just to, to build a home. And just a couple generations ago, Nobody would have ever said anything to you about how you built a home on your land. It was one thing if you were a commercial builder developing a subdivision, you were going to sell to people. But if you bought a piece of land and you picked up a hammer and a saw, God help anybody that would have said anything. And we've we've lost a lot of that, unfortunately. So besides building a house with cash, what else are you doing to kind of strive to be debt-free, self-sustaining, et cetera, with your family. I mean, Homestead is more than just the house, right? For sure, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I mean, we, Natalie grew up in a very frugal family, and I didn't, and we kind of really focus on that for, from the time we got married until now and moving forward. We want to get out of debt as soon as possible. You know, we, we want to get these loans paid off as soon as possible. And luckily, again, like I mentioned with her, her job is really going great with what she's doing. And we're also living frugally and not spending too much on stuff. We've got some ideas for some other side cash coming in. I've got my little YouTube channel and, you know, making like 500 bucks a month. That's, that's not nothing. It's, it's kind of fun. Um, but we would like to be able to grow that into something that's, you know, plus a thousand dollars every month to kind of pay the, the bills. And after the mortgage is paid off and, you know, we don't have a car payment right now, we just paid that off. 
and doing all these zero percent financing, same as cash deals. Like we're we're really doing a great job saving towards the future. But you know, Natalie is she's got a fear. Like what happens if my voice goes and I can't record audiobooks anymore? What are we gonna do? What are you gonna do to make money? And I'm not a teacher anymore. I let my teaching license expire. I'm like, I'm not going back to that. I'm not going back to the schools. And, and uh, so we've got we've got some ideas. And at the very top of our property, or top of our five acres, it's actually about 300 feet above us because we're on the slope. We want to build, and you mentioned it earlier, a geodesic dome. We've got the idea. We've got the, the plans already going for us. I'm going to just rent a mini excavator or a big mini excavator for about a month and clear a nice clear path all the way up to the top of our property, open up a big like 50 foot by 50 foot square space, knock down some trees, put a deck there and pop up a big 24 foot wide geodesic dome, you know, do the Airbnb thing. We are within 10 miles of 10 vineyards right here. And we've got the national park. We've got Washington, D.C., you know. I was just at the Homesteaders of America conference, which was in Front Royal, like it is every year, and every single Airbnb in the area is maxed out. Like, you cannot find them anywhere. There's not enough Airbnbs here. And people want really, you know, interesting and unique experiences when they stay somewhere, whether it's an old farmhouse or if you're trying to get into glamping, and you've talked about that on your show before, trying to make more money with your land so that you have more control and more capital building up for your life. And so we really think that we could... We could charge a good penny per night for that geodesic dome, put a little kitchenette in it. You know, we've got our budget worked out. And even if we only have 50% occupancy in the first two years, it would all be paid off. And everything after that would be profit moving forward based on what we've done with the budget. So where we are, we're really ripe for the picking for Airbnb. So we've got big plans for that. And uh, that plus Natalie's business and, you know, little side gigs here and there with YouTube and just saving up money. Uh, we should be debt-free in about five years, which would be huge. I mean, we're, we're 33 now. Actually, I just turned 34 yesterday. My bad. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're, we're in our early 30s, and to be debt-free in our 30s will be really great and just continue saving moving forward, you know? No, absolutely. And that's that's a huge achievement, to be in your 30s and be debt-free, including the house. That's That's massive, and it's... Again, we're back to like our grandparents and great grandparents, depending on how old you know people listen to me are. Because I, you know, I say, well, our grandparents, my grandparents, or or wusses or whatever. I'm like my grandparents are dead. They've been dead for thirty years. When I use grandparents, I'm talking about a different generation here. You know, uh, but yeah, that's what our grandparents did. You know, my my uh, my granddad bought his property, which was about an acre and a half. A pretty decent house. It actually had an old house that it turned into what we call a shanty, more like a shed now. And then the new house, which was built in 1897 or something like that. And he bought that place in the 20s for, I think, $987, if I remember right, you know. And, and anything that it needed, they did, or they didn't have it. It's, uh, it's, it's a mindset that I think is coming back. Like I said, as much as I hate YouTube sometimes, as I sit here in my gulag shirt for those on the video. Um, yeah, they've done a lot of good in, in allowing people like yourself and, and myself and all these other people to put this content out and expi- inspire others and realize you can either sacrifice now and have complete independence and freedom for the majority of your life, or you can have more now but be dependent upon somebody else for the rest of your life. Um, mortgages have a place. I mean, there's they're not evil inherent of themselves, but... 
like one of the few things I learned in high school that I never forgot was an accounting teacher taught us the root of the word mortgage. And the first part of the word is mort, is immortality, as in death. And the second part of the word is gauge from Old English, as in grip. So to be under a mortgage is to be under death's grip, Mm -hmm. meaning that most people would expect that they would end up never actually paying it off. They'll die in debt. And, like, we've gotten to a point now where we're, like, we're totally okay with that. Like, the word itself was a cautionary thing. That's how it was created. And it's become, like, well, and I remember a good friend of mine back when I was young who uh, often gave me advice and looking at his life going, our lives are the same, and you're 25 years older than me, so I... I don't think I'm going to take your advice. That doesn't seem like the way it should work. But he would always say, you know, don't worry about debt. You're no one if you don't owe somebody money in this country. And I'm like, okay, boomer. That wasn't a thing back then. But if it was, I would have said it, man. I would have said it. So um, what's next for you guys? Like the house is one thing. And I think you're almost done, but not quite. Like you are living in it. Mm-hmm. Right, but maybe there's yep, some yep. things left to do. But what do you? What's your? I mean, you talked about the Airbnb kind of hip camp clamping thing. I think that's cool. But what else do you have plans? Because five acres is a pretty good sized chunk of dirt. Yeah, yeah. and kind of tying into being more sustaining and saving money in the future. Uh, I I've got the little homestead starting up. You know, we did meat chickens last year. I I have some lawn space up here in the mountain. And uh, I was able to run 25 meat chickens last year, and that was a start, you know. And we've got raised bed gardens, and those produce a lot during the, the growing season. We've got the chickens, and we've got some ducks. You know, i got some ducks from Morgan at Goldshaw Farm who've learned a lot about ducks from you. And uh, so we've got a lot of homestead plans up here. And, you know, I would like to be in a place where we're not buying meat from anybody uh, unless I'm bartering for it. We've got tons of cattle herds all around us and paddocks all around this area, but I've got room up here for pigs. And I've got room up here for goats. In fact, I want to use both pigs and goats to kind of clear the underbrush and do do their thing naturally on our, on our hillside, mountainside up here and be able to harvest the pigs and harvest the goats for meat and kind of put on like a, a regular thing like that. So between meat chickens, goats, pigs, the garden, eggs that we get up here, we're, we're making a big dent in our food bill and, and what we need. So, um, you know, with, with that and trying to expand and then doing the Airbnb, we've got a lot of stuff coming up. Um, with Natalie and her business as an audiobook narrator, she's at the mercy, again, of noise. And even though we moved out of a townhouse out here, it's crazy how noisy the top of a mountain can be, especially when you're in the flight path of Dulles International Airport. <laughs> and uh, so we have plans to do this epic booth bunker. We're going to take a shipping container, and no, don't worry, everybody, it's not going to collapse. I have a I have a welding neighbor near, really close to me, just down the mountain, and he's a big, big shop with a, you know, big backhoe and everything. He does giant welding jobs, and he's going to help me reinforce the, the structure of the shipping container, just a 20-footer. In fact, I can't even fit a 40-foot container up my mountain road. It won't get up here. There's too many twists and turns. But we're going to sink that sucker in the ground. And uh, make it safe, and she will have an underground recording studio, so that no matter if it's raining or if you know 737 is passing 2,000 feet over our head to land, we'll still be fine. That she can record and not be at the mercy of all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of cool. And you know, an underground bunker might double as other things, you know, besides her recording studio, space permitting. So that'll be a really cool project coming up. And, you know, I'll, I'll have the big excavator out here digging a big hole behind my house and, 
you know, I might keep it an extra week and dig a hole for a pool later on and all that kind of good stuff. So when you have five acres, you got to use the five acres, you know. Don't just, like, sit here in the middle and be like, oh, look at all this space. Like, we've got we've got trees to take down for firewood and the Airbnb to clear out and all sorts of fun stuff coming up. So uh, it, we're in for a busy few years coming up. That, that sounds just freaking awesome, dude. It really does. I'm, I'm excited for you. I thought of one thing, and I, I kind of let it go and just came back to me when you mentioned your sound studio. Um, you mentioned that she's afraid that she could lose her voice and not be able to do her job. And maybe I need to look into this, too, because I don't necessarily have, like, a great singing voice or anything, but my voice is how I make my living. Absolutely. And I remember reading about somebody. It might have been Marilyn Monroe. It was some, you know, hot-to-trot actress back in the day or whatever, and she had her legs insured by Lloyd's of London. I wonder if, like, there's a, you know, because – Cost of insurance is relative to the value of the insured, right? Okay. So, like, you know, if your voice is worth a hundred grand a year, well, then you're insuring a hundred grand a year. You're not insuring Marilyn Monroe's freaking legs, which was probably <laughs> a publicity stuff. But I wonder if it's possible to like get specific disability insurance for a specific thing that's critical to what you do. I have no idea. Maybe there's an insurance agent out there that can tell us that just an, an off, oddball goofball idea, but. It's actually a really relevant point because, like, when I do my workshops, there's times where I'm, like, I'm out. I'm not doing anymore because my voice is going for three, yeah. four days in a row. And I'm, like, this, I have to, like, I know the first couple of days back it's going to suck. Maybe I have to take a day off, recover. But I can't do long-term damage, right? And I think we need to think about that more than just voices. Like, if you make a living with your hands, you lose, you know, the use of a hand, like, so that's, like, another thing in life that we do need to at least be prepared for. Uh, it's an interesting thing to bring up, like, I don't know what would really destroy your voice, but it certainly happens to people. Yeah, it does happen to a lot of people. She actually has friends that have had to take six months off of recording, tell all their contracts, all the publishers and authors, I can't record for the next six months. So it's, it is a real thing. Um, and a lot of people actually look to her for vocal health advice because of her career in opera. She was singing three hours, three hour long Wagner operas all the time, and she'd be, she'd be fine. But all the people that are getting into audiobooks for the first time and narrating for the first time, they're like, dude, I can't record for more than two hours and my voice gives out. She can be in there for eight hours and it's no thing for her. But you do have to think about moderating what you're doing and, and making sure you don't push yourself too far because a scratchy throat does not make money for us. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. I just went and saw Aaron Lewis in concert and... Um Man, he did a, some of his old stuff from back in his stain days with the grunge deep rock, and I'm like, man, how, how do you do that 150 <laughs> nights a year and not blow out your vocal cords, you know? Uh, but just a little interesting side there. Um, what are some other things you, you guys are doing on your property? Like, I know you, because I've looked, you've got animals and gardening and stuff, and like, you, you mentioned kind of the chicken thing, and like, uh, kudos on that. Like, people say like 25 birds, that's not that much, but if you're doing it to make a living, no, it's not. For your family, that's a chicken dinner every other week for a year, mm -hmm. right? You just skinned one meal a week, every other one meal a week every other week for a year by doing that, and that, and it's you. you I think another thing people do is they'll like they'll do that and they'll say, well, we raised these birds and they cost us eleven dollars a bird total cost or twelve dollars a bird or whatever. You should know that whatever the numbers you should know. Right. And then they'll say, well, you know, we could have went to the store and we could have bought that bird for seven bucks. No, you could not. Exactly. No, you could not. You could have bought a Pilgrim's Pride or Purdue steroid-infused, you know, GMO-infused chicken that lived up to its wing pits in its own manure 
or you could have bought the bird you produced for like 25 bucks. Sure. Right. So like, I, I think that's a fantastic thing. Is there anything else? Like, you know, you mentioned goats or whatever, like kind of what's your like, infrastructure, infrastructure, infrastructure would do with goats. So like, what's kind of your plan going forward? Uh, sorry, it froze up there on me for a second. So you're asking about infrastructure for goats? Yeah, yeah. Like, because if you're talking about goats, dude, like, yeah, you know, John Willis was like, yeah, I had goats and I came home and two of them were on top of my Porsches and I don't have a goat anymore. There's no more goats. You know, Nicole yeah. had them on the roof of her house. Like, mm-hmm. so you gotta, you gotta be thinking about that. Yeah, we, I do have the challenge of putting them on a slope, so you know, the fence height will vary with the slope as it's going. Right now, the idea is to do uh, five-foot-tall woven wire with T-posts and have paddocks where I can rotate them from one area of the slope to the other, um, like three or four goats at a time, and uh, having electric strands over top of that. Um, we do have bears. I don't think a bear would be too interested in a goat, but hey, if it's super hungry, you know, we, we might have curious bears and, and all that kind of thing. So with, with the help of hopefully livestock guardian dogs and tall fencing and the fact that I'm home, all the time, you know. Uh, hopefully, we should be able to manage it with with a little bit of fence training. And you know, I it's not like I'm naive. I expect them to get out from time to time. But the uh, the big time goal is to have a really tall perimeter fence around the entire property, or at least most of the property gotcha. at some point. So you know, right now my chickens are in an inner poultry netting, you know, electric poultry poultry netting, and then beyond that is a larger electric netting that's actually for goats when I come to think of it and in between those two levels are is my beagle he hangs out outside and he's the protector of the chickens and the ducks so having multiple layers to help keep those goats in place uh, hopefully will cut down on some of those rogue goats but when it comes down to it they'll get out and I should be able to find them pretty close to where we are and yeah we'll get them in the freezer at some point cool yeah I mean I, I pick on goats all the time because they can be a problem, but I, I never complain about eating them. So, and I like goat's milk. I just want somebody else to milk the goat for me. That's all. Um, anyway, how can people kind of stay in touch with you guys, follow your progress, etc.? Yeah, uh, we're just on the standard socials with Facebook and Instagram. Uh, our, our YouTube channel is all under Little Mountain Life. And pretty easy to find. We're just short of 11,000 subscribers, so you, sh- you should find us at the top of all your searches and all that good stuff. Um, but we're just we're trying to upload somewhat regularly and just share our journey and you know share our mistakes and and our successes. And it's been really cool to have people reach out to me and say, "Hey, we're looking to build a pole barn house down here in like South Carolina or out here in Colorado," and they take all the things that I've done, whether it's you know putting in the DIY mini splits to cool my house and they see me do it or putting in the radiant heat in my floor by myself and now I have a warm house because I did it. People are following that stuff. So it's been really cool to follow uh, what they've been doing with me. Like I met like five people this weekend that follow my channel. I'm like, wait, people actually do follow me. So uh, yeah, you can find us at Little Mountain Life and uh, we're going to continue sharing all the fun up here for sure. And I'll make sure that when the audio version of this podcast goes out, that we have links to all your social media. Everything else that it was mentioned or uh, useful for uh, podcast notes will be in the, uh, the episode notes today, like they are always. If you caught this on YouTube, um, you know, maybe it'll be an hour after this uh, interview that uh, a link will be added to the description where you can go over there and you can find all that stuff. So if you guys want to stay in touch with uh, uh, with John easy enough to do definitely subscribe to his channel and don thanks for being with us this is a great conversation 
Thanks for having me. I've been listening for a long time. It's a pleasure being here with you. Well, definitely a good conversation, a fun interview. And uh, remember, this interview was on YouTube in a live stream. I've been doing all of my interviews in the last few weeks, as long as the guest is technically capable of doing it, as live stream interviews. I've stopped really putting those on uh, Odyssey and Float as live streams. I'm going to start doing it again. I'm just really in a time crunch right now. It's one more thing to set up, so I'm, I'll start doing uh, all three platforms simulcasting again when I get back from my vacation that starts next week. Until then, we'll keep doing it that way. But if you want to make sure you don't forget that I'm going to be live streaming, number one, go to my YouTube channel, even if you watch it on the other platforms. Go to my YouTube channel and subscribe and click the little ding alert button, and that way you'll get an email from YouTube that says I'm live streaming. If you're like, screw YouTube, you can still go over to one of my other channels on one of my other platforms and watch it there again when I get back from uh, my vacation. Uh, the, the other thing you could do is just get involved with me with social media because I've always put it out there. But the, the one form that will always get you the information uh, is our Telegram channel. So just subscribe to my Telegram channel. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social there, and you can do that. Uh, the other thing you can do, and this won't help you with, with, with that issue, but it will help me and it will give you discounts. Join the MSB. If you are not an MSB member, let me just put it to you this way. What I'm asking you to do is pay me some money because uh, I don't hate money and, and I have to work for a living like, like everybody else. And that amount of money is 50 bucks a year. If you divide that by the number of shows I do a year, you're going to pay me 18 cents an episode voluntarily because you, you value the show. Then you're going to get discounts. If you use those discounts, and I'm talking if you use them four or five times a year, I find it impossible for you to not get your money back. And probably buying stuff you're going to buy anyway. You want seeds? we got discounts on seeds. Most people in their seed orders every year alone, they save enough money to cover at least half their discount or at least half their membership. Then we got uh, discounts on gun adapters. we got discounts on, on just all kinds of stuff. And I'm, I'm going to be working really hard once we get done with the workshop going into 2022 to build out some more programs, clean up some vendors. There might be a vendor in there, too, that's expired. I need to get with them, and either they want to renew or they need to be cleansed out. If you ever find a discount doesn't work, let me know, and I will try to fix it for you. But, I mean, guys, there's just the CBD products alone, the coffee, all of it is enough to cover your membership multiple times a year. So why wouldn't you be a member when you basically get paid to be a member if you look at the total cost across time? Uh, next up, the other way you can help us, just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. This doesn't cost you any extra money because I'm not asking you to buy nothing you don't want. Right. All I'm saying, you're going to buy some online, go to tspaz.com, start from there. You'll help us out no matter what you buy. Today's item of the day, though, that's featured on tspaz, and that is tspaz, tspaz.com, uh, is the K&H Ultimate All-in-One Stock Tank De-Icer. Uh, these are available in sizes from 250 watts to 1,500 watts in my write-up. I help you figure out what you need to choose for yourself uh, in using one of these. Um I've, I've, I've had them in the catalog at T-SPAS for like three or four years, like almost as long as T-SPAS has been around. These have been in there. I use them on my homestead. They're not on sale or anything like that today, but I'm going to be doing something over the next couple weeks. Uh, well, next four weeks because I'm going to be going away on vacation. Um, I'm monitoring certain things that I recommend for winter preparedness. And I expect by late November a lot of this stuff to either not be available or to come in brief spurts and be gobbled up, and I expect the prices to go up. Supply chain issues are a thing. 
products like this and some other things I recommend for wintertime prep, they go in short supply every year under the best circumstances. Right now, we do not have the best of circumstances. We have supply chain disruptions that I do not expect to kind of level out until about this time next year. That's kind of when I expect this ebb and flow, this disappear, reappear, uh, boom, glut, bust, etc. in the supply chains to start to clear up. Another year of this shit. Thank you, government. But this is something, if you have livestock and you need to keep water available for them, you can't wait until you need it to buy it. They are in stock right now. They're a great deal. They are one of the best products for your homestead for winter prep you can find. Again, they're a little, they're just little thing floats in your stock tank. You plug it in. Temperature hits 35 degrees. It kicks on. Temperature hit 45 degrees. It shuts off. Does it all by itself. And that way your tanks don't ice up, assuming you size it right for your climate. And that way, if nothing else, you can knock the ice loose because it's still thin. And that way your animals can drink and they don't go into dehydration in the winter. Uh, there's some other stuff. Right now, it's either not available or like there's three in stock that I recommend for winter. I'm monitoring it. I'll bring it to you, but I'm going to say this right now. If you need it for winter and it's in stock and you don't have it and you don't have redundancy for it, get it now. I am not someone that hypes things. I'm not someone that teaches fear. If you're new to the show, you might be like, this guy just wants to sell product. I didn't say buy it through T-SPAS. I said, if you're going to buy something online, start at T-SPAS and you help us out. That's a simple thing to ask you to do. But I don't care. If you go down to your, your local um, like tractor supply or Atwoods or any kind of stock store or something like that, and they have something you need for winter in stock and you know you need it this winter, get it now, okay? Get it now because it's going to be in short supply. It's going to be hard to get. And the damn prices on them when they're available, when people need them in critical needs, are going to you know, go up 50 to 100%. That's what's going to happen. So do it while it's available and affordable. All right, with that, let's go to our song of the day. We are playing the game for the last week for a while anyway. Guess Jack's Pandora channel. These are all channels that I've been training for like 10 years or more, by the way. This one... I started training this channel, I looked it up today when I was picking a song off it, in 2010. So I've been training this channel for 11 years. Uh, I've been giving you clues as we go this week. I'll, I'll, I'll give you, I guess, another clue today. The song of the day is Waiting for a Girl Like You from Foreigner. Okay? Uh, what can I give you for a clue today? Okay, the artist did his best work in the 70s but probably was at his height of popularity in the 80s for his music he released in the 70s with teenagers that like to make out with their girlfriends in cars. Okay? That's all I can give you. At least where I grew up. At least where I grew up. Like in, in, the, in the, the rural coal region of Pennsylvania, which pretty much operates about 10 years back in time all the time at least it did back then all right with that it's been jack spirico with another edition of the survival podcast <laughs>